Well, welcome to week seven of the CSF Curriculum Podcast. I'm Brian and here for a final week here with CJ. And we are talking about Galatians 5. Galatians is that freedom letter, as Eugene Peterson calls it, the the ultimate freedom letter that Paul gives us. And so we're going to probably talk a lot about freedom and some other things as well. And so let's dive right in. CJ, help us unpack Galatians 5. Yeah, great. Well, first we need to see what happens right at the end of of Galatians 4, because Galatians 5 doesn't just kind of pop up out of nowhere, but it fits somewhat within the the rest of the scripture. And in Galatians 4, he's contrasting the two um, wives of Abraham, or I guess uh, Hagar wasn't his wife, but the two... uh, two, Women in his life. The two women in his life. Yeah. Yeah, the two women who bore him sons. And Paul is contrasting those two, and he's kind of reading the Old Testament in a unique way, saying, well, you have this story, but really what this story does is show us the two very different ways in which God is interacting with uh, the people of his promises. And he says, in the first instance, you have Hagar, and Hagar bears Ishmael, but Hagar represents Moses and the law in Mount mm-hmm. Sinai. Mm-hmm. And he says, that is not the child of the promise, and in fact, that's the the, the child in slavery. Um, and then he contrasts that with the child of Sarah. Uh, and Sarah is representing um, Jesus instead of Moses and Jerusalem instead of, of Sinai. And it's not to pit these two against each other necessarily, but mm-hmm. to show that only one of these truly carries the promise and only one of them actually inherits eternal life. And that is where he jumps in to Galatians 5 from. He says, you are called to be the children of life, the children of of." Sarah, not Hagar. And so you shouldn't seek to be the child of slavery, but seek to be the one who actually inherits what the promises of the the, the true legal child receive. And so he says, because of this, don't be a slave. Christ Mm -hmm. set you free for freedom. And so we're wondering, well, what are we a slave to and what is this freedom? And that's really the the two huge questions of the first part of this chapter. What are we enslaved to and, and what is this freedom? Yeah, well, yeah, it's interesting that even in the Greek that they, uh, you know, that that it's in the dative case that first that first reference to freedom in five one and it's actually it basically means it's the the object without getting too far into this but but basically why did Christ set you free well the goal of that freedom that that the Greek and even you see it pretty well in the English translation as well the goal that Christ set you free for is ironically freedom uh, I've been reading through uh, David Bentley Hart's uh, theologian who recently released his own version kind of a New Testament translation he calls it a pitilessly literal translation translation. And, you know, and he says, you know, the anointed freed us for freedom is, is how he translates it is that, that God made us, he said, God set us free so that we could enjoy freedom and continue to live in freedom and, and to stand fast in that freedom, to stay in that freedom. Yeah. And I think to understand what that freedom is, because that's a really strange phrase, you know, Christ set us free for freedom. It's for freedom that Christ set you free is a really strange phrase. And I think it doesn't really make sense until you start to unlock what we're enslaved to. So in that first instance, kind of coming off the end of chapter four, he says, don't be a slave to the law. Don't be that child Mm -hmm. of Hagar. Don't think that Moses and Mount Sinai are going to be the thing which produces life in you. Mm. And he says this in in verse four. And I think we we have started to internalize this somewhat as, as Christians, that if you're trying to be justified by the law of Moses, by works, by somehow following the Ten Commandments, if you think that's what's going to give you eternal life, it's not going to work. It's impossible. It never has worked. There's never been a single person who's done it. Even the person who didn't have a corrupted nature, Adam, 
wasn't corrupted when he was created, still couldn't make it. The only person who could do that was Jesus. And he was the, the union of the divine and the human, where the will of the human and the will of the divine worked in perfect harmony in his one life. But us, there's no chance. And this is why he says, if you, if you want to get circumcised, you're alienating Christ. Good luck. If you want to try and get saved by following the law of Moses, good luck. It's a burden you can't bear. You're enslaved to it. There's no chance it will ever bring you freedom or life. Yeah, and it's not just any old part of the law. It's not to say, hey, you know, as Paul says in verse three there, I think, yeah, verse three, where he says, perform, you know, the whole law. It's not just saying, hey, you're going to have to do your favorite parts. Right. You know, you know, you, you, the fasting stuff or maybe the ceremonial food stuff. You, you've got to do everything because apparently if you read back through some other parts of Galatians Galatians 4:10 uh, uh Galatians 2:12 there's various parts where it looks like they're advocating for festivals new moon ceremony you know various types of things that would mm-hmm. be observed uh, apparently you know that we get the dietary laws get suggested back in chapter 2 so they've got their favorite parts that they're going hey if you're going to be a, a real follower here then you need to do x y and z but what Paul is saying is you've got to do a through z and there's no way that you can do it. There's, there's just no way. And, you know, it just makes me think in our contemporary culture where people go, you know, I'm, I'm justified because I recycle, you know, (laughs) or because I post about, you know, this or that social cause on, on my media pages. And what, what Paul wants to say is to go, Hey, listen, that one or two things does not justify you in the eyes of God. In the eyes of a holy God, you cannot earn it. You you can't, you would have to pick up every single justice cause in the entire world and live it out perfectly yourselves. And you just cannot do it. No, you can't. And I think if you read a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament, even when you think you've performed all of the requirements of what that written law says, just because you've sacrificed, just because you've held these rights, well, have you loved the poor? Have you, uh, he doesn't care about fasting and sacrifices if you're being um, uh, stingy with with your money and the poor. I mean, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, he says, have you kept all of the commandments? And the, and the guy says, yeah, I have. And he says, go sell all of your stuff, give it to the poor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Use your life for justice. Can you do that? And he says, no. And I bet even if he said, yes, I wonder what would have come out of Jesus's mouth next if he'd have sold it. I bet he would have said, well, have you ever hated your neighbor? Have you ever lusted after someone who's not your wife? Even if you've never committed adultery, even if you've never murdered, do you really think in your heart you have kept all the law? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is obvious. No, no, no man has ever done this. And so when Christ sets us free, we don't have to be burdened under the anxiety of feeling like we have to come perfect and perfectly follow all the law for God to love us. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the opposite. God does love us and he sets us free from the burden of fearing death because we don't match a perfect life in every little instant. Well, this is going to get us a little bit more in the chapter and I, and I don't want to skip too far ahead, but in talking about that Christ has set us free from obedience to the law through trying to save ourselves through our own moral efforts, this sort of thing. I think that that the freedom he's talking about isn't simply about freedom from the law. I think it's freedom in a couple of different ways. W- would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. It has to be not just freedom to do whatever you want, because he explicitly cautions against this. Mm-hmm. He says, you must love your neighbor. You cannot just do whatever you want in, mm-hmm. in verse 17. Yeah. You are freed not so that you can just do whatever you want. It yeah. does not mean that you are freed to live however you want. There was a a heresy in the ancient church, and it actually popped back up again in the, the early Americas. Antinomianism is mm-hmm. a big, you know, $5 word that you don't really mm-hmm. need to remember. But these people thought if God really controls everything from our salvation, from start to finish, we don't do anything. Well, then naturally we don't have to do anything after we're justified. We can live however mm-hmm. we want. We can just do whatever we want. And Paul, I think in, in one instance in Galatians 5 is trying to protect us from feeling like we have to work for our salvation. Mm-hmm. But at the same yeah. time, he's not opening the door to say, well, there's, there's nothing you have to do. Mm-hmm. There's, 
you can live however you want. He he's very explicit in saying no that that's not the case at all. Yeah, I think he's saying that we are free, as he clearly says later on in the chapter, you're free from also the the desires of the flesh, yeah. that you're free from uh, being a slave to the law, but you're also uh, you're also free from being a slave to your own desires, which is, you know, in, in our culture, the, the talk of desire is, it's like if you have a desire, it it has become equated with who you are in yeah. so many ways. Well, you desire this. And and certainly, you know, desires are a complicated uh, affair. But for a lot of people, in fact, I would say for all people, and it depends on the desire, but for, for all of us, we find over time that our desires change. Desires are not permanent. Um, but what Paul is wanting to say is that, you know, you're not enslaved to these, these desires. You're not infla- enslaved to having to follow uh, your own fleshly desires you were before. You've been set free. Yeah, and I think we can start to explore this a little bit. I mean, we're Americans. When we hear we want to be free, we just think, yeah, we just want to do whatever we want, right? If if our freedom means that the government can't tell us what we need to do, my neighbor can't tell me what I have to do, you know, I get to decide what I, what I want to do. And I think as soon as you start chasing down some of the logic of this, you'll realize that is not true freedom. I mean, what is slavery? What are we being chained by and what are we being chained from? I mean, the whole point is if you're enslaved to something, what is it stopping you from doing? Mm-hmm. And I think it keeps you from acting, but keeps you from acting on, on what, what does the chain keep you, um, from doing? Is it just anything you want? No, it's not from just doing anything you want. I think Paul would say, you're not any more free if you choose to gratify the desires of the flesh. If you choose to, to murder and to steal and to kill and to destroy, you're not any more free. That that's not freedom at all. I think for Paul, what, what freedom is is really when you're freed from anything that inhibits you from truly being what you were created to be. Mm-hmm. And I think this makes sense when we start to like think of some analogies. So my favorite one's a fish. I think I mentioned it last time. If you think freedom, which is what a good American fish would think here, mm-hmm. if I want to be free and I'm a good American fish, I think that what that means is I want to be able to walk on land. I want to be freed from the water. I want to be free to choose where I want to live. But there is nothing free about a fish on the land. Mm -hmm. It can't move, it can't breathe, and it will die, right? A truly free fish is one who is not on the land, Mm -hmm. also not on a hook or in a net, but one that is truly expressing what it means to be a fish by living in the sea. He's living within boundaries, within the boundaries of the sea, but that's the only place where he can fully express what it is to be a fish. And I think likewise for us, we are created with a nature that is intended for only one use. And that is to love God, glorify him and enjoy him forever. And anything which keeps you from doing that is something you're actually enslaved to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about in really personal experience, both my brothers dying due to addiction issues in their lives. And in particular, I think of my middle brother because it was such an extended process and I was so involved in his life in so many ways. And and yes, he was free to do whatever he wanted to do, to put whatever chemicals he wanted to in his body, but he was absolutely enslaved. Yeah. I mean, th- those the, the, there was nothing free about him and he, you know, he was, he was slave to it and he stole from friends, dear friends, friends I know that in some sense at some point in his life he cared for, but he lost those friendships because he mm-hmm. was slave to this other master of his desires. And I think that's one of the reasons kind of going 
going back to the beginning of the chapter here, and as we walk through this, is you know, I love that expression. I think it's in verse two where where he says, you know, to stand fast, yeah. stand fast in freedom, and and that's that's a military term. If you've you know, I, I know I can hear the phrase being used in Band of Brothers, you know, where they're they're told that the, towards the end of the war to stand fast on all your positions, and mm. and basically what in many ways what that is is saying, hey, dig in here where you're at, stay put, uh, make sure you don't lose this ground. You've gained this ground, stand fast on it. Don't don't give it up now to to an enemy. And so I think what Paul is saying is that we have this freedom in Christ. It is ours, but we have to stand fast because if we don't stand fast, we will slide back. And so, you know, freedom is just one of those things in life that if you do not exercise it, you cannot keep it. it it's just like love. If you do not, you may have the gift of a good friendship. Uh, and certainly I have the gift of a, of a great spouse. I know CJ, you, you have a great spouse as well. And oh, so, indeed. yeah, that's right. Uh, Carla, if you're listening, but, uh, but yeah, you know, if, but if I do not live in that love, if I do not exercise that love, then you run the great risk of losing it. And you see so many marriages uh, wind up on the rocks because of this and, and freedom is the exact same way. If you don't use it and use it wisely, uh, you run the risk of losing it. And what this means is practically that, that freedom has its own kind of chain, but it's a good chain. There is a law of freedom, an order of freedom. The best way that you can be most free in a marriage is to forbid yourself any other woman. Mm -hmm. The only way that you can be a good husband or a free husband, a good wife or a free wife, is to put up boundaries, Mm -hmm. to say something is forbidden here. And that might sound like it's a curb on our freedom, right? Oh, I want to be able to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. Mm -hmm. That's the person who's most Mm -hmm. free. What you actually find is that's the person who's most enslaved. They're the person who can't enjoy love. They can't enjoy another person. And they cannot flourish as a human being. I remember Gene used to say, uh, Gene, going back to earlier podcast here, but Gene used to say that, uh, what's a train without rails? Yeah, exactly. It's not even a train. It's just it's just a wrecked pile of metal and 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 it's destroyed. It doesn't get to live out its purpose and it's just it's just wreckage. And so, but it gets to be itself mm-hmm. when, when there are rails and it gets to help other people and and see all kinds of sights around the country. It gets to do and experience a lot of things that without those rails, without that quote unquote limitation, it's the limitations that actually in in our in an ironic fashion help it to exercise exercise its freedom. Yeah, and I think what you see here is just the difference between liberty and license. Liberty is something which has boundaries, something which is directed toward a a certain object or a certain end. And license isn't. License is just the ability to do whatever you want. And I think liberty, as opposed to license, always assumes that humans have a nature. You have something that you are built to do because you are a certain kind of thing. We are a human being. We're given the image of God, which means we have a certain thing we have to do with that image, which is to reflect back to him, his own glory, and to enjoy him forever. And I think what happens in our culture, at least, is that we've rejected human nature and we've decided we can just fashion human nature in whatever way we want. And as soon as you lose human nature, this idea that you're given something and that what you are determines what it is to be best, you know, the best fish is the one who swims in the water. Well, if you get to decide whatever it is that you want to be for yourself, if you don't have a nature, uh, then freedom really is just your unlimited choice. You get to fashion your own identity. You get to fashion your own life. You get to fashion your own universe just on your own whims, whatever Mm -hmm. you feel like choosing to do. I mean, to tie this back into our Genesis 2 and 3, we have a nature and we're created by nature to love and to get married and to produce children. By nature, we're created with a certain design to love someone of the other sex. When that human nature is gone, 
you get to decide who you love. You get to decide what your family looks like. You get to decide everything about yourself. And mm-hmm. if the world or anything in the world seems to push against whatever that desire is, well, it's the world that's wrong. It's not mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, let's keep moving here as we keep rolling through. One of the expressions I love in in Hebrews five or Hebrews five here, Galatians five, uh, Hebrews five as well is is a great chapter. But in Galatians five is this expression that if you want to keep depending upon the law to do it, then you have fallen from grace. You know, if you've fallen from grace, verse four. And, and I love this idea because this is the high life. This is the high countries that God has called us to live in. Is this this amazing world of grace. In fact, if you've ever wondered why the Bible and, and a lot of different people refer to things that are up as kind of this, this better, higher state, it's like things that are living grow up. Things that are dead you know, tend to fall down and disintegrate, and they, they head downwards. And so what, what Paul is saying is here is you've fallen from grace. You have been built up, and you've made alive, and you are growing tall. But but when you fall from that, it is like moving downward into the death world, that you're, you've been given this amazing, amazing gift of grace, and yet now you've fallen from it. But what's interesting is, and, and this gets us on a few more verses into, into verse 7, is that it says you were running well. So and there's something that's happened here in Galatia that uh, that Paul ha- is seeing, hey, listen, these are people who at one time were following Jesus. They were doing this. They got it that they were saved through grace. However, something has come in and something has happened. But yet Paul is writing in a hopeful way here. And actually even history tells us that the Galatia church survived. The church at Galatia uh, lasted. And so apparently this letter, this letter and to some degree worked, that God used this letter in a powerful way in their community to return them to the state of grace and to go, yes, this is not about uh, salvation by works. It's not about being free to do whatever we want to do and to be enslaved by the flesh. And so I, I just highlight that as an encouragement because I think oftentimes it's it's going, well, you know, God saved me, but I blew it. And so now I've kind of, I've missed out on everything. But what Paul is clearly saying in this is saying you were running well. Someone else cut in on you, told you lies, um, and and yet you. this is not the end of the road. You can still turn back, and you can come back to God. You can uh, begin to live in that freedom that you were, you were supposed to be living in all along. Yeah, I think he sets up here the distinction. I mean, the, the reason he's pitting grace against the law here is because when you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. If you say I'm saved by Christ plus circumcision, you're not actually saved by Christ. Christ did not come and need anything else to save you. He came to wholly save you by grace, something that he's done, not anything that that you're doing. Um, so Christ plus anything is actually just eventually the, the functional elimination of Christ. And that's why he uses such strong language here. You're alienated from Christ. Right, you are cut off. Yeah, I, you know this this idea of falling from grace. You know, Paul says in in moving on in verse eight, what persuades you is not coming from the one who calls you. And again, that that just practical spiritual warning. I mean, one of the reasons we've been doing these uh, these the the curriculum, these great passages of scripture this semester is because we want uh, you and everyone else in your groups to be able to listen to hear God's voice in scripture, so that when you hear as Paul says, what persuades you is not coming from the one who calls you, that we can learn to hear our father's voice. We can hear the the, the voice as he talks about in chapter four of our Abba, of our father. And we can, we can then discern, listen, this stuff that I'm hearing is not my father's voice. This is the voice of the evil one. This is the voice of the flesh, whatever it is that we learn to discern wisely God's voice so that we're not led astray. 
And so finally, just to reiterate again, Paul, he, he says it up here in, in the first few verses of, uh, of the, of the chapter, he's talking about justification here. You don't need to be worried about works for justification that Christ plus anything is not actually Christ at all, but that is not all he's talking about because that might open this door to, you know, you're not under the law at all. Um, and we're not under the law in terms of us getting saved. What he's talking about down in verse 18, but we do have things we must do uh, after that we are given that justification, that, that salvation is a two-step process. We're justified, we're set right before God, but we have to be transformed too. What does it mean to be freed if you're stuck in the slavery of your own sin as well? And he says, what does this life look like? What does this transformation look like? Well, it does look like you working together with God to love one another, okay? Love one another, serve and love one another. And there's gonna be particular fruit that come from this. And this is really what I think the second half of this chapter is about, is what the life that is freed from the slavery of the law looks like. Well, it's a new law. It's the law of love. Yeah, in verse 15, CJ, Paul hits that imagery about biting and devouring one another. Watch out or you're going to destroy each other. And that language, that imagery, even, you know, again, kind of looking back behind the the English text into the Greek is literally the language that they would have used for snake bites and, and, and animal attacks. And it's almost as if Paul is saying, you know, thinking about that snake bite imagery that if you don't watch how you're how you're uh, treating one another and speaking with one another, it's like injecting poison into them. I mean, you're just going to wind up destroying the people around you, and and ultimately wind up destroying yourself. Yeah, I think, and I think Martin Luther has a really good quote on this because it's easy for us to be like, yeah, that, that's easy, love your neighbor. I mean, that, that's the easiest thing in the world, right? All of us understand that. What are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. Easy. Luther has a really good quote on this that I think is really convicting for me and I think really great. He says, you must not think that you know fully this commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. It's very short and easy as far as the words are concerned, but show me the teachers who teach it and put it into practice properly. The words serve one another in love and love your neighbor as yourself. They're full of spirit, and none of the faithful sufficiently consider, urge, and exercise them. It's amazing that the faithful are tempted in this way. If they omit the slightest thing they ought to do, their conscience is quickly wounded. But they are not so troubled when they neglect the demands of love as they do every day, or fail in sincere and brotherly love toward their neighbor. They do not think about love as much as they do about their own superstitions, from which they are not altogether free during this life. And for me, when I hear that, I think, yeah, we worry all the time, like, oh, I, I had this little sin, right? I told a lie or something. But then we turn our backs on the people who need us. We turn our backs on the suffering. Mm-hmm. We don't love our neighbors. We don't comfort those. We don't visit the prisoners. We don't take care of the widows. We don't ter- take care of the orphans. And those are the things we don't, which don't bother our conscience at all. There's a, a guy I listened to, and uh, he was once asked, hey, do you deny the resurrection? And he, and he said, yes. Mm-hmm. And he, he waited for the gasps in the air. Um, And then he looked at them and he said, I deny the resurrection every time I don't feed the hungry, every time I ignore injustice, and every time I scorn the sufferer. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a deep wisdom there that you can imagine that that we're not saved by the law. That's true. We're not Mm -hmm. saved by the law. Mm -hmm. But in what meaningful sense are we being transformed if we're not loving our neighbor? How can you say that you affirm the resurrection and that you're justified if the fruit of your life look like that first list that Paul gives at the end of Galatians 5 and not that second list? Uh, and so I think that there's a deep call to love your neighbor here. And it's one that is easy to say, but very difficult to do. And I think only the fool scoffs at this and says, it, oh, yes, I know this. Uh, I know it fully. Uh, I think that person is just the person who's not looked in the mirror enough. 
Yeah, and again, it is to underscore that point that we're not saved because we love our neighbor. We love our neighbor out of our salvation. We have been, you know, that that first and mighty work of Jesus on the cross is that mm-hmm. we have been justified, that our sin has been has been put aside through through his death, mm-hmm. that he has he has taken care of this. But then there is this second work, this, you know, if that's justification, there is what we call sanctification. There is being being sanctified, being made literally into a saint. And that that is work that that will entail our work, that we cooperate, we are cooperators with the spirit in that justification is God's work from from first to last where we start to get in the process and God says okay you've trusted me for for you know your salvation in this way but now what I want you to do is to trust me and to put your hand in mine and to let me lead you and, and then we do the work of letting God lead us and and trusting him again even that is the Holy Spirit's work but is us walking in behind the Holy Spirit and cooperating with him yeah and I think Paul tells us there's a way that you know you do this Look at the end of Galatians 5. Is your life producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, mm-hmm. goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? And I think it's interesting there that he ends with the, the and. I think you brought this up to me one time mm-hmm. that that word fruit is actually not a, a plural word. It's a singular word. Mm-hmm. If you want to know what the life of Christ looks like, it's not a, a fruit bowl with some grapes and some bananas and some apples. It's actually just one fruit that has all of these things in it. Yeah, it's an out-of-this-world fr- fruit, quite literally. It's a mm-hmm. fruit unlike this world has ever seen because it's got all of these things in there. And, you know, what I think is interesting, too, about this, the, the farming imagery, I mean, one, I, I think we should take some hope if we look at our lives and go, man, God, I, I really thought you'd be further along. I know at 46, I look at my life and I go, God, I really thought you'd be further along than you are. I do see some progress. I see some things where it's like, okay, God, yes, you have done work in my life. I'm not just standing still. But, you know, a farmer, growth does not happen. Fruit does not happen like the snap of a finger. It grows over time. It, it, it's produced over time. But what a farmer doesn't do is a farmer doesn't just go out and look at the soil and start yelling at the soil and going, why aren't you here? Why aren't you here? There's preparatory stuff that goes into it. A farmer, you know, lets, lets the soil be tilled. Uh, a farmer plants seeds. And so for us to grow in Christ for this this fruit to be uh, developed. You know, for a long time, I would pray, and I still try to, I just pray through this list of the fruit of the Spirit and say, God, bring this fruit into my life. And I would just, you know, say, you know, recite through all the different fruits of the Spirit and and asking for God to do that. But, you know, what I, what I found over time is that it wasn't so much that I, I, I gave up on praying for that fruit. It's that I asked God, God, how do you plant the seeds in my life so that that fruit will grow? Because I, I found myself as I was praying, I just wanted to kind of go poof and, and the fruit was there. Mm-hmm. But then I found myself going, well, God, if I do need to be loving, if I do want to be joyous, if I do want, I want all this different fruit of the Spirit to, to emerge, God, what are the things before that fruit emerges you need to put in? What are the seeds you need to put in my life? What is the pre-work mm-hmm. that needs to go on before before those fruits are, are ready to arrive? Yeah, and then a, a lot of times I... I... I pray through this list as well and think and ask the Lord, well, what do I need to prune here? What what do I need with your help to to look at and to and to see in this plant the parts of it which are withering, the parts that need extra water? Uh, for me, the big one that I, I've gone through uh, time and time again is just self control. I've realized I'm not a controlled person. I don't control mm-hmm. my tongue. I don't mm-hmm. control my my actions a lot of times. And so I go through this kind of inventory of, of my life and try and think, Lord, which of these needs watering? Which of these needs pruning? Uh, and by your grace, what can I do to, to begin that process? Mm. 
Well, CJ, it's about that time to begin to wrap up. Let me give just a couple of final bits that kind of escaped us earlier in the podcast that I just, for me, just some of my favorite parts of Galatians 5 as I study it. And one of those is is one of my favorite verses in, in the entire message translation that Eugene Peterson gave to us, uh, you know, God working through Eugene as he works to translate this text. And it's in Galatians 5.13. He says this, he says, it's absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. And again, just using freedom in a good way so that we find ourselves living in more and more and more freedom. Because it also, connecting that, uh, another bit I didn't get to, to hit earlier, but it's just so good. It's this quote by Augustine in his famous book, Confessions, which uh, many people see as the, the first spiritual autobiography of in the Western world and Western history as he's writing this, gosh, you know, 16 centuries ago. But this is what Augustine says. He says, for of a perverse will was a lust made. So out of the perverse will, a lust was made and a lust served, a lust exercised became custom and custom not resisted became necessity. So in other words, you know, Perverse will, we have a perversity of will and lusts of different kinds come out of that. And once that lust gets served and we go after it and we kind of try to gratify it, then we get a habit. And then out of that habit, once a habit starts going in our lives and we don't resist it, then it's no longer a choice for us. It becomes necessity and we become slave to it and we have to do it. We have to go after it. And 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 you see just the easy path to how we lose our freedom. Well, I think uh, letting Eugene and Augustine have the last word is, is pretty good with me. That's great. Okay, well, hey, I hope this helps you all this week in having some great conversations and pointing students to the freedom they have in Christ and what that looks like to live on the UK campus. So until next time.